0: The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, Corrections, and Bear Markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Gaia.
1: My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. This, hopefully, will be a, uh, a really strong and lively conversation, given the insane number of tweets that i put out today which talk specifically about system testing and how to think about periods when you're in anomalies which i would argue were unequivocally in uh, at least the last six months joining us for the hour is adam robinson who i think a lot of people will find really fascinating given the way that he uh, frames things with his twitter content and i think he also have a podcast as well adam but for those who are not familiar with your background adam just talk about who you are how'd you get involved in markets and what are you doing now
2: sure so um I went to Wharton undergrad, got a law degree at Oxford, and uh, came to New York thinking uh, I was going to write novels. And um, I thought, how do I support myself? Because I knew if I went to Wall Street or, or worked at a law firm, I, I, I'd get caught up in that world. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll tutor students. And in the process of tutoring my, my first student, I, I figured out a way to beat the SAT. And uh, a couple of years later, I teamed up with a guy, actually uh, about a year later, Uh, John Katzman, and uh, we built up the Princeton Review into a national business. And uh, then I got in a market sort of, I guess, around the year 2000. I mean, I'd always been interested in markets, of course, because I went to Wharton as a teenager. But but it was around 2000, I met an old partner of uh, Soros, a fellow named Victor Niederhofer, uh, who was uh, sort of a quant quant. And um, so that and it sort of resurrected my interest in, in markets. And, um, last dozen years or so I've been advising some of the top hedge fund, uh, heads and, uh, heads of family offices, uh, in, in the world, uh, on, on all global macro markets. So equities, U S sectors, bonds, currencies, commodities, the whole shebang. And, um, uh, so that's, that's how I, I got into markets. I think they're endlessly fascinating. And, um, uh, you know, I, I I would argue, Michael, and I'm sure you'd agree. I I think it's really the the toughest discipline because you have to think clearly uh, in a in a world sort of like mixed martial arts, it's like of the most incentivized players in the world. You've got to think clearly when everything is on the line. So you've got to control your emotions too. So I think it's in, incredibly fascinating and and uh, no greater
1: performance domain (laughs) and no domain which has as much confusion over whether outcome is due to skill or luck right i always go back to that point that when you think about all the different professions somebody can choose to be in some professions there's a clear line between your skill your effort and then the outcome where you can draw a direct line to that effort and what comes of that effort but the reality is and as somebody who uh, is quant oriented as you are there's only so much that we can control, and yeah. the outcome is very hard to really identify, right? And, and in terms of how it plays out, so, yeah. so 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 a couple of things. So I want to go with that for a bit, but but first I want you to maybe for the audience define the difference between a quant versus someone who is rules based. And I say that because well, while you can argue they're one and the same, right? Like I consider myself much more rules based than quant, right? But but talk about that distinction for a bit. Well, so so I, I'm actually not sure of the distinction. I,
2: I know it is in my mind. And I, I would say I, I'm more w- rules-based in the sense of, of having a replicable system. Most, I think most investors do not, even very sophisticated investors, to your point, have gotten where they've gotten largely because the way they do things, which is not systematic, just happened to line up with the market's idiosyncrasies for five or ten years. And they look or, or six months. Exact there you go. And they, they look brilliant. You know, it's it's a lot of the people, well known names, who made a fortune in the big short with the housing collapse have done very badly since then because they kept trying to replicate what they did, not realizing they were in a sense Lucky, because a system should work in different kinds of environments, right? It should should work to the upside, downside. If you're bullish tech, you should know when to be bearish tech. I'm not going to (laughs) name any tech investors here, but you know, there should be times when you're no tech is overvalued. We're going to short the heck out of it right now, instead of just always being a perma bull or a perma bear. And so, I think you want to find. A method that works for each each individual. right? There's no, there's no one system that works. Michael's system is great for Michael and uh,
1: might not be good for Adam and vice versa. And it's important also to note that systems will have drawdowns, right? Which I think is something we should tease out because I, I, a lot of my, my day today was spent on Twitter basically just peeling back the onion a little bit and, and trying to do a little bit of Socratic method, asking people about how they view what happened this this year. And to your point about luck versus a repeatable process, mm-hmm. in a in a six months like what we've seen, so many people have been pounding their chest about how they saw bonds falling, but nobody has yet to point to me anything that would suggest that bonds would fall in the way that they fell relative to stocks. Right? So let's let's talk about how do you identify if somebody's gonna do a little self reflection. Mm-hmm. on their own trades and their own approach what's the best way to identify if if that successive number of wins was a streak due to luck or maybe if a drawdown was also due to luck in that case bad luck
2: right well the 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 first is you know to to evaluate your trades via some benchmark right so if uh johnny is up uh, 17% this quarter and he's pounding his chest, look how great I am, and yet the market's up You know, 25%, he's actually underperformed the market. So you need some kind of benchmark for one. And then to look at what your drawdowns were, and you know, there, there are all kinds of metrics, a sortino ratio, sharp ratio, that, that measure uh, the risk that you undertook to achieve the, the returns you got. So one would, would be to start to dissect that Again, relative to some benchmark, and the benchmark could be the S and P five hundred, or let's say you trade energy stocks, uh, then it should be, say, the, the energy sector as a whole. And uh, so, for example, you know, if when we're evaluating a tech uh, ETF, say, you'd want to see whether that ETF outperformed just a broad basket of tech stocks like uh, uh, XLK or the ETF. That's the, probably the most liquid tech ETF and for the Qs, right? QQQ, and Q. Uh, and then see how you did relative to the, those
1: benchmarks.
2: I think that's that's super important.
1: Right. Now, the challenge, of course, there is to your point, you have to identify the right benchmark. And unfortunately, as you know, everybody always compares everything to the S&P because of the availability heuristic. It's always on TV. Home bias, right? From a behavioral perspective. But I think that the challenge, though, when you think about benchmarking is... First of all, you have to find the right benchmark, but also there might be no real benchmarks for what you do. And I understand everyone always always has to have something to compare against, but I feel like that maybe gets people stuck on how to think about their own strategies when their strategies may need a very particular type of environment, whereas the benchmark is for a different environment altogether.
2: So uh, so I agree with you completely. Uh, Let's just jump in, for example, regarding volatility, and risk-off in bonds. And, you know, we've been in a, let me see, this is, we've been in a 40-year bull market-ish for bonds, 38, 39, 40 years since Volcker broke the back of inflation back in the early 80s. Since then, interest rates have declined, you know, inflation has declined, and and we've been in a secular bull market, secular meaning, you know, multi-decade bull market for bonds. And, but there was a time when stocks and bonds went down together when everything was being dumped, right? During the 70s, right? When you had, the, you had the bear market in the 70s, so 70 to 74, it's lost like 60% or something. And bonds were getting hit then too. And so I agree with you that, that bonds get lift when there's risk off, and yet they can both be dumped. And something that's, that's, you mentioned which I thought was so great, michael earlier uh, anomalous period is uh it's very rare for stocks and bonds to be dumped together, and right now everything seems to be uh dumped right anything where you can raise cash so it extends to crypto i not really uh don't know much about the art world and things but but I think that the the watchword right now is raise cash and so Stocks are getting sold down, bonds are getting sold down. By the way, this is very interesting, and this is an anomaly. Um, the only thing getting dumped faster than treasuries is investment grade bonds.
1: Ah, okay, thank you. Let's yes, please. Keep going <laughs> no, no, because because this this is why I keep I keep going back and retweeting with comments and all this stuff. All days, like people saying they saw the bond market sell off coming. It's like, hold on, what credit quality? What duration? right? Mm-hmm. Bonds are not, it's not like a monolithic type of situation. Yes, they, there's obviously a, a, a coupon income component to it, but you have to distinguish by credit quality and you have right. to distinguish in terms of default risk, which is why treasuries are unique in terms of how they behave in yes. high volatility equity periods. So so let's go with that.
2: Yeah. So I know you always, Michael, I think one of the great things about the lead lag report, you're always educating your, 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 your followers and, and subscribers and and so uh, with that in mind, one of my favorite uh, leading risk parlance is, uh, is the credit spread. And uh, so if you want to track uh, um, investment-grade bonds versus treasuries, it's uh, uh, long LQD short IEF. So, right, so IEF is the ETF for treasuries. And if you do a ratio of those two, you will see that it, it leads the broad market it, it, at every major turning point for the last, I don't know, 17 years.
1: It's never lagged once. And that's because, that's because spreads are, are contracting because Triple B, which has credit risk, is outperforming the risk-free treasury of a rough similar duration.
2: Well, that's true when it is contracting, but right, now it's correct. expanding, right? And so LQDIF is, I think, last time I looked a couple of days ago, it was at 21-month extremes. So that means that that's projecting the S wait th- again. You and I are not giving investment advice. <laughs> this is just by way of education, a way to look at the market. Is the credit spread suggests the S and P should be at twenty one month lows, and yeah, Treasuries are getting dumped. Everyone's dumping Treasuries, but they're dumping corporate bonds faster, which is you know not a good sign for the market. You know, it'd be one thing if interest rates were rising at pe- ten years, right, Treasuries, but uh, corporate bonds. The environment were growing. If the environment, economic environment were good, we'd expect investment grade bonds to be outperforming treasuries, and they're massively underperforming.
1: Right, and that that's only been in the last you know let's call it month, month and a half, because the I think the initial phase of this bond sell-off was really more on duration, right? And, well, and this also yeah. No, I was just going to say. Let me. I'm just
2: going to now go to the chart and see. So LQD. Ah uh, yeah, so that peaked. Oh, that's interesting. We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit the lead slash lead lag live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion. So it was March, right? March is when it started uh, rallying back and right. Well, okay. Yeah. So it started rallying back.
2: So let's, I'll tell you when it peaked though. Multi year peak was early November last year, it peaked and was headed lower. So it peaked a couple months before the S&P 500. The rally you're talking about, which was quite right, Putin invaded uh, Ukraine on February 24th. And from Feb 24th till March 7th, key date, March 7th. Uh, And we're going to get to more anomalies in a second here. So from February 24th, again, Putin invades Ukraine. Everyone thought, oh, my God, the sky's going to fall. So from Feb 24th to March 7th, there's a massive sell-off in the S&P and all risk assets and a buying of treasuries. And then on March 7th, things started to reverse. And by the way, I don't know, again, speaking about anomalies, the U.S. dollar is at 19-year highs, but it's the second strongest currency in the world right now. The strongest currency is the ruble. The ruble against the dollar is at seven-year highs, and that's extraordinary. And by the way, since March 7th, since the invasion of, actually, of uh, Ukraine, the number one global-performing market, Russian equities.
1: No, 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 and and I'm glad you say because it's not just, you know, it's and I've used that line before, it's almost like have black swans everywhere. We can argue very far about the definition of black swan. I think Talib, when he's responded to, in my tweet was missing my point about the sequence of returns factually being mm. a tail event, as opposed to the idea of bonds and stocks going down. It's about the yeah, and, and as a systems developer, you yourself, you know, know it's really about the path, not the endpoints, right? Yeah. Just like in the 70s. Indeed. Right. So in the 70s, everyone who uses the comparison of the 70s without actually looking deeper, they say, okay, in the 70s, stocks and bonds both did poorly. Again, which bonds is the question. But more importantly, it's in those high volatility thrusts which coincide with equity drawdowns where treasuries actually still acted. And that's, that's the whole point of that, that data I've been showing all day, still acted as the risk-off safe haven. Sorry, Michael, you're exactly right. I wanted to jump in and, and, and totally agree
2: with everything you just said. So treasuries are the safe haven relative to investment-grade bonds. So treasuries have been rising relative to investment-grade bonds. Again, you always need the benchmark right? And the benchmark here for, for bonds would be treasuries. And treasuries have been rising relative to investment grade bonds. And that's, that's actually risk off, right? That's a sign of risk off. So again, bonds are going down uh, on an absolute basis, but they're going up relative to, to investment grade bonds, right? Treasuries are going up relative to investment grade
1: bonds. Right. And, and, and that's an important distinction, that relative convexity, Right, yes. against risk assets, right? Which is that, which is, you know, it, you're going to equate it to a sort of a black swan type of strategy without the bleed of an option to overlay. But that's the whole idea of, of playing treasuries when you're in these high volatility periods because you get these very sudden and aggressive relative moves against equities. Now, the data that I showed, and that goes back to 1961, to why 1961? Because you cannot get total return data before that on mm. treasuries because you never had not only the uh, accurate data as far as the pricing mechanism, but there have been times in the past where the U.S. government suspended doing treasuries. So you can't get continuous data. That's Dude. why CRISP, right, goes to 1961. So it's like all these all these comments that that look at yields before this, they're, they're not understanding what's the sequence of yields and how frequently were they updated prior to 1961 to then determine the total return. That's that's an important distinction. But where I'm going with that is that if we go with this idea that treasuries act as the safe haven and that it's about relative behavior, there are, t- there are two other times in history where treasuries lost money while stocks were losing money at the same time, but it was like down one or two percent. Mm. What's happened in this drawdown for equities, as I've noted, and it's in the shared space here, first time ever in history where the drawdown in treasuries is pretty much like the drawdown in equities. Now, that to me sounds like a black swan. Nobody saw it coming in terms of the sequence. Mm-hmm. It's a tail event, and it is highly consequential. Why is it highly consequential? Which is part of the de- definition of a black swan. Well, it's highly consequential because the Fed can't do anything about it. Right, right. You know, and and,
2: and again, it's so important that, that um, again, we, we, we're talking about benchmarks and relative performance is um, the, the four best performing sectors year to date on a relative basis. Are energy stocks, even though they've come back a bit, are still up relative to the broad market. But utilities, staples, and healthcare, which are defensive sectors. So those sectors, again, energies, utilities, consumer staples, and uh, health care, have been outperforming the broad market. So they're up relative to the broad market. And the, the way to think about this, uh, I don't know if anyone's ever been to um, Orlando, Florida. There's a, there's a, a ride the Tower of Terror. Have you ever been on that, uh, Michael? Have you ever been on the Tower of Terror?
1: I, I gotta, I gotta, it, it scares the piss out of me. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I refuse to do so it. Yeah. It
2: scared me too. So for those of you who don't know, you are plunged faster than gravity. So you fall faster than a stone. That's really scary. But here's a cool thing you can do. Don't. I, you didn't hear me say this, but imagine you had a quarter on your knee when the ride started. You're plunged faster than gravity, and you, you see the quarter rise up magically. It's falling. It's just not falling as fast as you are. And so there, in the market, there are all kinds of plays where you go long one thing and short something else. So two things can be falling. For example, uh, utility stocks have fallen. They just haven't fallen as much as the broad market. So relative to the broad market, utility stocks are up. Uh, which is another anomaly. Utility
1: stocks usually get slammed when bond yields are rising. Yeah, no, no, no let, let go. Go with that because that's. So this is also part of my, part of my frustration because the mm. very first paper that I, I published in 2014 that won the 2014 Dow Award mm. is called is called an intermarket approach to beta rotation. Goes back to 1926, and the finding is very simple. When utilities, which are the most bond-like sector of the stock market, are outperforming mm-hmm. on a short-term basis, that tends to precede higher volatility states, crashes, corrections, bear markets, no different than weakness in lumber to gold, right? Just in a different different kind of path. And to your point, to your point mm-hmm. utilities benefit from lower rates because they're highly levered. Their, their earnings variability is much more driven based on the cost of capital than increased revenue, mm-hmm. right, because they're regulated. So that's another one of these anomalies, which, again, is very, very underappreciated.
2: So it see see. Now, this is <laughs> it's so interesting because if here's a chart to look at uh, utilities relative to the 10 year. So the ETFs are XLU and IEF and utilities relative to treasuries um, are up year to date. So XLU, IEF, let me just see year to date. I mean, I'm looking at my chart as we speak here. They're up six and a half percent on a relative basis, actually like double that. Like thirteen percent, so utilities have outperformed treasuries by by thirteen percent year to date. It's pretty good. So, so you know, it's interesting. It's so funny. You would do that report, and it's, it sounds so seminal that you go back that far. This is such an anomalous period here, because because I did the same study not as far back as you did. <laughs> I I stopped at forty years, and and it, we've never seen utilities outperform like this with rising yields ever. Not to this extent. It's, uh, it's extraordinary.
1: So this this is maybe a good transition to a question around system development and process because mm-hmm. I, always, I always go back to this point that there, every, every strategy has three components, right? One is whatever signal you're looking at, utilities, lumber to gold, or moving average, whatever it is. One is signal. Two is opportunity set, how you're expressing, right? I and then three is the look back period. right? Okay, now to your point, if your expression of risk-off this year was utilities, you would have been way better off than having treasuries as the risk-off expression. Even though even though historically, in major drawdowns, treasuries tend to be far better than utilities because exactly to your point, utilities on a relative basis will outperform, but they're still equities. So they're still gonna have that beta on the drawdown.
2: Yes. So this brings me to one of my key uh, uh, sort of, Heuristics, key themes that I've been hammering on publicly, actually since, uh golly, since two twenty seventeen, I was on uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast. And I, I talked the, about the notion of things that don't make sense, and it's so important in financial markets and to everything that you just said, Michael. Is is because when you look at something, whether it's Michael look at some, looking at something or Adam's looking at something or anybody's looking at something, and you're going, "Ha, huh, this doesn't make any sense." The market's going down. Why the heck are utilities going up relative to treasuries, right? That doesn't make sense. And really what that means is that my model of the world isn't making sense, right? Because I've got a model that looked back over the last 50 years, and this always happens, but it's not happening now. And whenever that happens, whenever something, using air quotes, doesn't make sense, it's always a really powerful trend. Very, very, very powerful. Never fight it because it means that there's something that Adam hasn't thought of and Michael hasn't thought of that's powering this move in utilities. And don't fight it. It could, it could be even intraday. Doesn't matter. Whenever you, you look at a screen, go, huh, that's weird. The whole sector's down. Uh, well, energy stocks are down, but oil's up 5%. What the heck is going on here? Something very powerful
1: always with anomalies. Right, especially when the co movement is not acting as it as it was before, even though the causation never really changed, right? right. I think that's sort of the because again the causation for utilities is flight to safety rates fall. That causation fundamentally has not changed with utilities or staples or healthcare as defensive proxies. As, as defensive proxies, absolutely. Now by the way, Staples has a,
2: a double sort of win win. Well three wins actually if you think about it. One is it's relatively high-yielding sector. Two is it's a safety. And three, because a lot of the staples are food companies, they're an inflation hedge. So that explains the, you know, the triple tailwinds for staples. And, and, and again, I think sort of the watchword, I, I try to reduce the world, which is so complex, as you know, Michael, down to simple mantra that Adam's Cocoa Puff brain can get his head around And the the watchword right here is cash, really cash is king. Conserve cash and spend money only on things you need to spend money on. Now, I'm saying that that's what's playing out in the market, right? Think about the sectors that have outperformed year to date. You need oil, you need gas, right? oil. You need food, that's done very well. You need electric, Con Ed is going to do very well. A healthcare you're going to need. And within financials, insurance companies need insurance. That's outperformed. And so, really, across the board of sectors, the sectors that have done the best have been those that offer products or services that people
1: must have. If uh, everybody you near, know, this is like a, a conversation that's really true to, you know, and, and near and dear to me because so the, so the problem that which I've been saying many times on Twitter is my health is that the risk-off asset, treasuries, which is not deniable, that's the whole point of me showing the data, going back to 1961, that in these drawdowns, and equities, treasuries factually, in every single instance except this last six months, treasuries factually act as the safe haven, even though, by the way, a year from now, they could both be lower. It's in that sequence. It's in that pattern. And all these anomalies that you're talking about are throwing off these historical relationships. Now, this becomes... I think a really important thing for us to discuss, which is, if we agree that this is an anomaly, if Mm -hmm. we take ourselves out of the day-to-day movements of markets, and we say to ourselves, "What's happening here has never happened," and not just never happened in terms of stocks and bonds, but in terms of treasuries against utilities, in terms of these currency fluctuations, these tails that are that are wagging everywhere. The question then becomes: If you're a systematic trader, if you're rules-based, what do you do about it?
2: A fascinating question. So. I'm going to throw out three concepts here. The first one is just to go back to something I just said, things that don't make sense. So so we're seeing an anomaly. Let's say we're one month into the anomaly, right? Okay, okay, so one month anomaly. Okay, maybe that doesn't mean too much. But after two months, you go, okay, two months of an anomaly, and then three months. So at a certain point, we begin to ask, maybe the rule has Maybe this is a different regime. And because there's no precedent for it, right? no precedent for it, 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 it's hard to, we can't rely on statistics, right? Because it's never happened before. And so I want to share, again, this is a, a sort of a heuristic that I use often and I've repeated publicly, is the question, what precisely do I need to see to tell me I'm wrong? And, Uh, now I'm talking about Adam, right? What do I need to see? So for example, if I say uh, um, gold is going higher, let's say, I'm using that as a total example out of the the thin air, right? So gold is going higher. I might say gold is going higher unless I see interest rates increase by more than 10% in any one week period, or unless I see gold miners drop relative to the S&P by more than 5%. In other words, I will going into a trade i will specify um, precisely what i need to see to tell me i'm wrong and i'm 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 exiting right and so i think that's really important even even with systems and at a certain point you know I, it's so important to follow systems so 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 important and then the question becomes if there's enough of a of a of a, of, a, of a breakdown is this a, a totally new regime I am sure you remember, Michael, the summer of 2007 when all the quant funds... A-
1: August July. 2007. There's a great yeah. paper, great paper. Uh-huh. What happened to, if, anybody that's curious. This, so this actually, I'm so glad you mentioned this. So you and I are very similar in our thinking. There's a great paper. I forget uh, uh, the author names, but it was what happened to the quants in August of 2007, mm-hmm. right? And, and correct me if <laughs> I'm wrong on, on this, Adam, but there was a period, so the, the uptick rule was removed July 6th of 2007, and maybe that caused something structurally in markets back then but basically a month later what ended up happening is a lot of these long short funds were having like multi standard deviation spread events in their pairs trading in their stat arm right and then so it was only and it was only like, like for two or three days but it was something that like all their var models said okay you have got to de because you had this moment in time where there was an anomaly in these statistical relationships between going long gm for example and then short ford just as, as an example I remember very well, Adam, and then I want you to just kind of riff on this. I remember very well that the authors noted that the ARB funds started degrossing at the exact wrong time, <laughs> right? Yeah. Meaning meaning they were actually taking less risk when they should have been taking more because they were in a dislocation. And the author noted that while they did the prudent thing to degross because they were in the anomaly, it was the exact wrong move. Yeah, and so,
2: so you know, at a certain point, so those, you know, I I don't I don't think many many people remember that event, but August 2007, basically every major quant fund was like like losing a year's worth of profits in a month, right? <laughs> and uh, AQR, right, The fastnesses fund, and and uh, uh, you know a, a number of other major quant funds had really bad summers, and it's interesting that it hit all the funds and they don't all trade exactly the same, but it goes to the point where there's some some anomaly and it should tell you, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't what I'm used to. I better take myself offline, right? I'm not gonna name any names, but uh, there's a very famous fellow who writes a lot of books and runs a fund and um, in November of 2019, He publishes a blog piece and he says, um, uh, the world has gone mad and the system is broken. Think about that. The world has gone mad and the system is broken. Really what the parenthetical there is, the world doesn't make any sense to me, which is to say, it's not behaving the way my models say it ought to behave. I know myself, if, if I think, say I'm driving down the road, Michael, and everyone is Driving erratically, like everyone on the road is driving really fast and and swerving as if everyone was on psychedelics. I'm gonna pull over to the side of the road because that's a very dangerous environment. You would think someone who writes a blog piece saying the world doesn't make any sense to me. It's gone mad. Therefore, I am going to cash. (laughs) You would have sat out the the 35% decline in right Feb March of 2020. And so when things don't make sense, it's a time, I think, to to wonder whether you're you're I, I one, I'm not saying Michael or Adam, right? Is oh this the regime. I gotta I gotta think this through here. Because again, when things don't make sense, something very powerful is it is in play that our models,
1: Adam's model, Michael's model, whoever it is, model isn't accounting for. But there's a there's a side to this point about the world doesn't make sense in sitting in cash, which is Curious in the context of treasuries, which is to say that people always forget. I think that the decision to go into cash or to to stop following a strategy is is actually two decisions. It's when you go into cash and then when you deploy the cash, or when you when you stop your strategy and then when you deploy it. And I always go back to the, that that example of Greenspan saying that the Fed needs three models: one model for what to do when the economy is contra- contracting, one model for what to do with the uh, economy expanding. And then the third model has to tell them which model to use. <laughs> yeah, right. Because it, yeah. And I really am sincere because, because I think this is what's, what's so missed in a lot of these conversations around, you know, well, then just change your strategy or change your opportunity. set. That assumes that the environment is not going to revert back to normal, which you don't know except for hindsight and fairness, right? right? But also the other part of this is that now with this treasury sell-off, there is actually a positive spin on this, which is that now actually there's room to make money being risked off. Wait, wait, are you saying make money on the short side? No, being risk off being the long treasures. If your expression of risk off is treasures, which historically is a a better, I would argue, way of playing a highly volatile period. Right. Now you've got some room. So my point is that the identification that maybe you should change a strategy or, or sit out a period because nothing makes sense, the problem is by the time you come to that conclusion, it may be time for the turn anyway.
2: Oh, I see. So so let me let me throw out another proposition and this is, you know, for, for, for your, you know, those about the people listening in is if you're a trader right, is, is you, you have a system that you've developed and you find those market conditions and maybe sectors or types of stocks or types of trading horizons that you excel in and then just stick to those, what is it? A uh, Munger called circle of competence, right? I'm really good trading energy stocks, or I'm really good day trading uh, 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 high beta stocks, right? Whatever it is. And you stick within your domain. And then, and then if the situation is changing, you know, oh, maybe I should stand aside. Now, that's more for a trader than someone who's always in a market, say, right? Just you're going to, as an investor. Uh, but there, trading, you'd want to find those environments that you're you're good at. Those situations, and and wait for those situations. And if it's not, eh, stand aside. Right? Buffett and Munger say that most of what they do is wait,
1: <laughs> wait for a good good buy opportunity. Well, they're waiting for the fat pitch, right? right. Well, that's, fat that's, pitch. That, yeah. Which is which is which is an interesting discussion because the problem is that people are sucked into the idea that you have to have frequency of gains, right, one or two percent mm. per month, when in reality, because of tails. Because there are black swans, it's more about the magnitude, right? Whenever that, that fat pitch really comes.
2: I, I want to warn people about the dangers of seeking explanations. It's so important because we want to understand the world, right? We, we do want to understand the world. And yet, we never can. We're always more or less mistaken about the world, right? The world is just too darn complex. And yet, so, so the danger of an explanation, first of all, we'll never know, Nora, Michael, and Adam, and everyone else listening, we'll never know whether Nora's explanation is correct or not, right? There's no way for us to determine that. And, and at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter what's causing it. We just know utilities are outperforming, and until we see evidence otherwise, they'll continue to outperform. The danger of an explanation is confirmation bias, right? We get locked onto an explanation like, oh, this is why utilities are outperforming. And then we look for more evidence that we're right. And it's so important. Again, is anti-confirmation bias. You want to look for evidence that I'm wrong.
1: Let, let me hop in there because I, I I love this because to, further to your point, you're rules-based, you're systems-based, you have a, a particular strategy and process. The problem with the human desire to always want to have a reason is that it gives you a sense that you should not abide by your system, that you should Mm. not follow this or that particular signal at this particular moment because X, Y, Z is the reason for why this is happening. And the moment you do that, then you find excuses with every single time some kind of a signal tells you to do something. So I always make that point. So you got to be careful with sort of the, the why, because if your system's and rules-based, the why doesn't matter. It actually can be worse because it can cause you to override your own approach. Yes, yeah.
2: Oh, by the way, you mentioned low vol stocks. Low vol stocks have outperformed high beta stocks, right? And again, you've always got to choose your, your, your benchmark. So if you had been long low, beta, low vol stocks and short high beta stocks, you're doing very well. In fact, that trade is like a two-year highs right now. You've been long utilities, short the S&P, again, two-year highs. Uh, if you'd been long staples and short the S&P, two-year highs. Same with healthcare. So you're correct, Anora. Uh, uh, it's low, beta, uh, low vol stocks have outperformed. But they're still going down. But they're, if you had been long those and short the market, this isn't investment advice. It'd be at two, two-year highs right
1: now. Well, and also, it's still some of the the. Taking it a step further, I'm looking at the S and P's sector weightings. It's more than just this idea of of defensive sectors. It's really all the 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 least weighted sectors of the S and P are the best performers this year. Materials at 2.6 percent of the S and P, real estate 2.92, utilities are three percent, right? So energy 4.35 percent, consumer staples 6.99. So while tech is at 26, and I only mention that because, and this is why it's so tricky when you think about things from a relative perspective, the the idea that utilities, for example, might be outperforming because of rebalancing. Well, the problem is that these quasi, what they would call active fund managers, were really still have an R-squared of 99 against the S&P, they might be marginally overweighting utilities by 10 or 20 basis points. It wouldn't fully explain the momentum by any means.
2: Right, but again, we don't want to explain. Correct. <laughs> right? correct, correct. Right, right. We want to get away from explanations and explanations are comforting but they they really set you up for a confirmation bias.
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Look, you can argue that everything COVID on has been an anomaly. But in the lead up to COVID, the historical relationship of risk-off tail uh, indicators still held true. Even lumber to gold. Lumber was weakened uh, relative to gold just before the COVID crash. So there's a lot, and and I always go back to that line, just because it's raining doesn't mean no crash, just because it's sunny doesn't mean it won't. It's always about probabilities. But when you're in the small sample, the challenge is, again, I go back to what do you do when you're in such a weird environment? Do you bet that things normalize? Because, and maybe this is a good direction to go to Adam, which is that the problem that I have with this idea that this persists is that I don't believe the system can survive if it does. And I know that sounds dramatic, but if you think it through, if 60-40 is dead, if stocks keep correlated to treasuries, mm-hmm. you're talking about a double whammy to the government. You're talking about collapsing tax receipts. Luke Roman's been on top of that correctly mm-hmm. right? Because now you don't have asset markets going up. Oh, and then, by the way, on top of that, now your interest expense is higher, which means zombie companies start going bankrupt because they can't afford that debt when they roll it over. And on top mm-hmm. of that, the deficit for the U.S. government explodes. So I always make this point. Like, be careful what you wish for under this idea that it's regime change and that stocks and treasuries keep acting correlated because, to me, the implications are far worse than anybody's drawdown in their portfolio.
2: Right. At a certain point, you know, the betting... um On the end of the world, right? Betting on apocalypse is is never a a, a winning bet uh, because the the central bankers of the world, in the past anyway, have gotten together and found some way to like prop up the system again. And 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 yet the the question is, how long can someone, you know, how how long can you can you was that uh, great um, John Maynard Keynes quote? The market could stay irrational longer, (laughs) longer than someone could stay solvent. And and so. So yeah, I think, I think we're in for some, take a look at, at, the, at the historic capital rotation into the defensive sectors here. So you're absolutely right, Michael, it's risk-off. And then the question is, so where is capital going? Right, it's, it's dumping tech stocks, dumping discretionary. Again, I said before, the sectors that have outperformed right now in a risk-off environment, are those that offer products or services that people need? Insurance within financials, right? So I'm not saying insurance companies are good stocks to invest in, but I am saying insurance companies relative to other financials are outperforming. Staples companies relative to discretionary, consumer discretionary, uh, are at 27 month highs. Again, long staples companies, so products that you need to buy, food and things for the, for the home, things you absolutely need versus discretionary stocks, consumer discretionary, like you don't need another another pair of sneakers or another dress or whatever. Those companies are getting slammed. So staples relative to discretionary, and actually I'll pull it up right now, I think it's at 25 month highs, RCD to RHS, mm, yeah, yeah, two, t- 25 month highs, 20, 20 sorry, okay, 27 month
1: highs. Staples relative to discretionary, and by the way, that happened with the Fed still barely raising rates. And, and this, this is why I keep going back to this this, this narrative around consumer spending, and inflation. I think the market has gotten way ahead of the Fed, I mean, way, way, way ahead of the Fed in terms of the idea that it's not maybe just peak inflation, but maybe you know disinflation or a deflation pulse because that's what the relative movement of the consumer side is actually telling you. Right, and you know the the um, you see a lot of hand
2: wringing. By economists and the pundits and everything, are we in a recession or not? It doesn't actually matter. It is clear we are in a recession mindset. Well said, right? The consumer is in a recession mindset, and that's all that matters, right? And corporations are in recession mindset. So they're going, oh, we better lay off workers, or we better, right, in terms of corporations, look at all the layoffs. And Right. It was just a few months ago they were talking about the great resignation of all the young people, millennials are
1: quitting their jobs. And I don't think people would be so quick to quit right now. And the roaring twenties and all these stupid narratives that it's yeah. just like we're not that long ago. Yeah, it's not right. So consumers, which is to say households, are
2: in a recession mindset and corporate CEOs in a recession mindset. And a recession mindset is going to lead to a recession, whether or not we're in one or not. It doesn't actually matter because they're behaving as if we're in a recession, right? And that's affecting, you know, capital capital expenditures, profits, cash flow, everything. So it doesn't, you know, the economists always, always late to the party, always get it wrong. So yes, we're in a recession mindset and it's going to take a while before consumers go, oh, I guess I guess we're not in recession anymore. I guess things right. are okay. That's going to take a while to, to shake off.
1: Right, especially if housing is still early and it's, it's own term. By the way, on that point about Keynes, you know, markets can remain irrational longer than you can say solve it. I used to always joke that's only true for shorting. Huh. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, because markets can be irrational. I'd argue I've I shared it at the top, right, and I, I put that tweet out yesterday. Markets can remain irrational longer than you can stay disciplined. I think that's really Ooh. the proper way to frame it, right? Personally. Mm-hmm.
2: Anyone who's confident about this world is not paying attention.
1: <laughs> like
2: You'd be a fool to be confident in this environment. And I'm not saying you should panic, but this is, this is we're very serious times right now, right? We have the shock just when we were kind of getting our head around the COVID pandemic. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, Russia invades Ukraine. Huh. And who knows? Again, here's the way to think about the world. We're in a world where we couldn't anticipate COVID. We couldn't anticipate the Ukraine crisis. Sorry, Ukraine crisis. What else don't we know about the world, right? Where's the next shoe that's going to fall? And so this is very much the way to get ahead is to preserve capital, right? And, uh, and, and the trends that are in place are going to stay in place until we see evidence otherwise. We've got to see evidence.
1: Not explanations, just evidence that things have changed but uh, that, that 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 whole bit is is the is the difference between a quant a rules based approach and and everybody else because to your point, the explanation doesn't matter it's the data and the relationships maintained right that that matters It's like I always make it a point that all I try to do maybe in a colorful way is give voice to math right because everything I do is rules based you know mm-hmm. mathematically based based on relationships, and I'm just a cheerleader. And, and maybe that's a good way to wrap up. At the very beginning, Adam, you had mentioned this point that this is maybe the, the toughest discipline because you have to think clearly. And thinking clearly to me seems really difficult in this environment when everybody wants to, you know, pound their chest and say, I got this call right, you didn't, and your approach, which is not working, is broken. Right.
2: I mean, you know, the thing is, uh, it's uh, the thing about investing is it's always a matter of the odds,
1: right? And you've got to, if
2: you have a system that works, say, 65 or 70% of the time, then 30% of the time it's not going to work. It doesn't mean the system is broken, right? And, um, for example, when a when a meteorologist says there's a 30% chance of rain, nah, that means if you look back over the last year when he said that or she said that, eh, 30% of the days it rained. Um, but it, it could have been wrong any number of the times, right? So, so it's always the long haul
1: That's what you got to be in it for. Further to that point, it's like when, when people would once it was announced that Trump won, right? Everyone said, oh, you know, there was no way he was going to win, but he still had, you know, according to the book, he's whatever, five, ten percent. That's still a percentage, right? There's still a chance. You know, so you're, my point is that you're, you know, I think people confuse low probability with no probability you know, in anything, in, in markets, in, in life in general, and that's that's the challenge in the small sample to try to wrap your your head around, so listen, everybody's here. we're a little bit over um and Adam was kind enough to join us late tonight. everybody, please make sure you follow adam and you as you can tell,' very thoughtful. I very much enjoy this conversation because a lot of what Adam spoke about here is very resonates very highly to me, right as somebody that you know is you know I'm the man in the arena with these strategies that's going through our time, and I'm very open about about that and I try to present data as much as I can to try to explain what's happening, not to provide an excuse, but to provide context. I think more and more you need to have people that actually provide the context as opposed to just look to the right of the equal sign, look to the left. Absolutely. Thank you, Adam.
3: The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.